0: Tonight's message is entitled, For Such a Time as This, An Overview of Esther. And so tonight we begin our exposition through this book. These ten chapters that uh, are in the book of Esther are more than just a great women's Bible study. How many of you have ever been a part of a a women's Bible study through Esther or something like that? Several uh, women, oh, a few few men, what? But uh, and I, that's not a degradation of women's Bible studies or anything like that. It's, it's rather just this book deserves the attention of the entire church. This book here has much to teach men and women of all ages. And ultimately, what I decided to come here was because it's the right follow-up to Romans. It's a good contrast for us, and it really helps us to, to uh, see the book of Romans and all the theology there that uh, was laid out very straightforward. It's, uh, Romans you know, is a very heavy-hitting, Christ-exalting theological book, and, and it covers major areas of theology from our sin to God's salvation and how we live a life in Christ, whereas Esther, on the other hand, is not that those things. Esther, on the other hand, is not systematic theology. Rather it's a narrative or, or a story. And it's in the Old Testament here. Okay. Uh, the difference is in Romans, God is mentioned and all over the place. There's very specific teaching about him, and in Esther he's not mentioned even once. He's never even referred to. There's no name of his that is mentioned. The Old Testament law is, is nowhere to be seen here. It's not that the Jewish characters in the story aren't following the law. There's no uh, uh, mention of them observing the law or practicing sacrifices. There's no praying in the book of Esther. There's fasting, but there's, there's no praying. And so this, these things alone really have even led many to question, well, why is Esther in our Bible? Why has it been recognized uh, throughout the ages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament amongst the uh, Jewish people and the people of the church? Why is this even in our canon? No one has ever questioned whether Romans should be in the Bible. No, Nobody has ever brought that up, but many do question whether Esther should or should not be here. I obviously of the opinion that it should be, uh, but others uh, maybe not so much. And our approach is going to be different uh, to the book of Esther than it was in Romans. In Romans we took a a sequential expository approach, meaning that we started in verse 1 of chapter 1 and we worked verse by verse all the way to chapter 16, verse 27. We did it verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph over the course of a year and a half. And and that's that's very typical and that's how we should approach uh, the epistles and those letters that were written uh, in in the New Testament in that way. But with Esther, this won't be the case. Tonight, we're not going to pick it up in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and take a little section. But actually, tonight, we're going to take the whole book, all 10 chapters. And, uh, and, and, and then the next weeks, we're going to do thematic exposition. And this isn't because of time constraints or, or that uh, we couldn't go sequentially. It's not that you can't do that through the book of Esther, but I, I want us to see this story or this narrative here in its entirety. And that's really what, what narratives are meant to be like. They're, you know, they're meant to be read as a whole for you to see the big picture of all that's happening here and then to glean the application and the meaning from it in seeing it in its whole. And so if we dissect it too much, uh, then we're going to lose the, the bigger picture. Okay, picture like an apple pie, if you will. You take an apple pie and you cut a slice and you eat it, uh, you know, bite by bite, right? And you get the full flavor of the pie. Apple pie, if you were to take it all out and dissect each of the ingredients, it wouldn't be as good as the apple pie, right? The, the bare flour and the cinnamon and all those things, if we were to eat them uh, individually, it, it wouldn't taste the same and as rich as the whole pie, Right? And so such is the case with uh, this book and really with any book. But uh, and it's not to say that we couldn't look at each of those uh, parts and pieces or each of those ingredients. But with this, I think there will be a lot more richness and there will be a lot more filling for us to see it in the whole picture. And so tonight, like I said, we're going to cover all ten chapters, and then uh, hereafter, our remaining weeks, we only have about four weeks in this book, we're going to do a thematic exposition, looking at these three big themes after tonight that we'll see repeated over and over really throughout this book. And so if you were to do it sequentially, that would be fine, but uh, but what you would get each week as we did that would be a lot of the same application and a lot of the same points. And so it would be maybe a different uh, story or a different scene in the story uh, from a, di- different, uh, 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 a different time frame within Esther's life. But you would find that at the end here, I'd, I'd be just repeating a lot of the same things to you and, and uh, be the same application. And so, so we're going to take it all uh, in a big picture. Before we get into it, uh, I, I think it would be helpful for us to uh, see the big stage and what's going on here in the historical context. And what's the, where this book fits in human history and in biblical history here. And so where the book of Esther fits is at the end of what we know of the, of the Old Covenant or the end of what's recorded for us in the Old Testament. Right, you know, at the at the beginning, you have the Adam and Eve and creation, all those things at the very beginning, and you get to the Mosaic Covenant, and I mean, I'm skipping over a lot, Abraham and all those things, and then David, and then and then the the kingdoms and all those things, and then uh, the kingdoms split. You have Judah and you have Israel, right? And those those two tribes go, or those two uh, uh, people groups, then are are taken into captivity. They become slaves. Um, by uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so what, where Esther fits in is all the way at the end of all that okay? it's amongst the people of God here um, and they have been in captivity now uh, God's people have been taken out of Jerusalem the Judeans uh, the, from the people of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin they've been taken out of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and they, they've been in captivity probably some 90 years or so by the time Esther is written We know that once they've been taken captive by by Nebuchadnezzar, about 47 years or so after that, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king of of Babylon, but now King Cyrus has been king, and you may be familiar that he issues a decree that the peoples under his dominion can then return to their homelands. All right? And so he becomes king. He has a vast empire. He's Cyrus the Great. His empire stretches from uh, almost to India and into Africa. It's a vast empire. And so part of his plan is in in order to control this vast area is he lets the peoples that have become slaves go back, reestablish and build up their walls and and go back to their way of life, but really with uh, some strategic military intent behind that decree so they can build these epicenters and, and uh, have different outposts for his government officials to go and work in and stuff. But, but all that to say is that uh, not only all people get to but we know that then the Jewish people get to return to Jerusalem, right? And if you're familiar with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the record of those, of, of the Jews returning back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple. Those guys that are working there, you know, they're working with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other, right? Waiting for attack, you know, dropping their tools to, build to fight off any uh, enemies that might come and try to harm them. And uh, when it's, uh, they're in safety, they're, they're rebuilding the walls. And so that's, that's happened. It was predicted that it would happen. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel predict that their captivity would only be temporary, that they would be able to return back to their uh, uh, to their place. And so you know, we know Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Zerubbabel, those guys that are, uh, those major guys in Ezra and Nehemiah return to do that. And so many, many Jewish people do. However... Most of the Jewish people do not return back to Jerusalem. Those that were taken into captivity and have been spread out, most of them do not uh, return back to the promised land. Many do, but not, but not all of them. And that's where Esther fits in. Okay? So it, Esther takes place about 50 years or so after Cyrus makes that decree. Okay. He makes that decree. Many go back, Ezra and Nehemiah, and about 50 years or so, uh, it's estimated that this is when Esther takes place. Cyrus is no longer king. Uh, it's now king of uh, Hasuerus is what he's called here. That's his, uh, his uh, uh, Persian name. His Greek name was Xerxes, okay, and he, is, he has even a greater empire. We'll see here he has 127 provinces under his control stemming from India to Ethiopia and so he's a he's a, he's a, a a very powerful leader. There's a lot written about these guys uh, that is recorded in secular history, even outside the Bible. Um, the secular historian Herodotus um, describes this king here in Esther Xerxes as a tall and handsome man. He's an ambitious and ruthless ruler. He's a brilliant warrior, and he's a jealous lover. That's how he was described in, in all of his might and and all of his uh uh, leadership over this great province here. What's also interesting at this time, and so Esther, this takes place in a, in somewhere in the 4th to 5th century B.C. Okay? The 400s, maybe early 500s but probably right in the middle of the 400s is when this is all taking place. And what's interesting... Uh, that's, what's, that's when this is happening, but across the, the globe, across the, the worldwide scene, many other uh, very uh, profound things that are still in effect today are also taking place. Over in China at the same time as when Confucius was alive. And we've all heard you know, the, the sayings of Confucius, right? He was that philosopher, and so he's, he's over there, and those things are being recorded. This is also the same time of the Golden Age of the Greek Empire. Right? It's when guys uh, in the Greek Empire or even really where the, the beginnings of democracy are starting to take place in, in their government. It's the time when Socrates was alive and all his uh, philosophic... Uh, teachings and things are being formulated some of the things that he was founding uh, we still even use in a christian apologetics today and how we argue and how we logically reason about things of the faith that's that's happening in the the greek empire okay uh, also in the world of mathematics this is the time when pythagoras was alive and and we, you know all of us probably took geometry at some point and we know the pythagorean theorem right And so he's writing all his theorems and he's reaching uh, uh, and discovering new things in the mathematic realm and and on and on and on it goes. That's just a few examples. But all these major events and all these new discoveries and, and all these things that still shape our world today are happening at the same time. Things that much has been written about in secular history books. And so in the book of Esther, which is really great because it's almost a, well, meanwhile, back at the ranch in the promised land, you know, amongst God's chosen people, this is happening because it wasn't necessarily in the promised land. They didn't return to Jerusalem, but it's a meanwhile back, you know, here, this is what God's still doing to preserve his people. And so it's just, it's very fascinating to me as you look across the the landscape and just human history. And then you see these things happening Uh, Here, there's some unique things about Esther that uh, uh, in this book and how it fits into the Bible. Like I said, it's the only book where God's not mentioned. There's no variation of his name. But what's also very interesting about the book of Esther is uh, one scholar has has noted that this book here forms the uh, uh, the ending uh, or or a bookend to Mosaic Judaism. The beginning being the book of Exodus and they draw, there's a lot of parallels between these two books and seeing uh, you, you know, Judaism in this form with the temple and the sacrificial system and all that was uh, laid out in Exodus coming to an end here now in Esther. And so it's it's very fascinating. It's it's a, a neat study. One of my uh, professors, I've mentioned him before in, in different uh, uh, messages and things. But one of my professors, he did his Ph.D. work in the Book of Esther, and he's like one of the world's foremost scholars in this and medieval Judaism and all this uh, this stuff. But uh, he, he draws a lot of these parallels and some shadow and fulfillment uh, from the book of esther but but if it's int- it, I'll just draw out a few things here just to show you some of the similarities where were the Jewish people coming out of in uh, in the book of exodus they were coming out of slavery right and where are they what are they coming out of here in esther they're coming out of slavery and so you see these these two similarities there's two uh, in each book there's kind of a a uh, Uh, a a jewish ruler who finds himself strategically placed in the pagan ruling king's uh, family right moses is placed in the in pharaoh's household here esther is in xerxes household and they initially they're reluctant to kind of lead god's people in this way but then they then they do Um, there's uh, other parallels here in Exodus uh, after all the plagues and events happen the fear of the Lord leads many to come uh, and and convert to Judaism we'll see the same thing in the book of Esther after uh, many are destroyed and after these decrees happen uh, many uh, because of the fear of the Lord come to and convert to Judaism there's large numbers of their enemies being defeated and destroyed uh, in both books Um, And what's interesting in both of them also is that a festival is instituted. Festivals that are still celebrated by the Jewish people. We know from the book of Exodus what what is instituted there. The festival or the feast of Passover, right? Celebrated in the first month on the 14th day. And so it's actually coming up uh, here in, in the Jewish calendar. They're different, but their first month will be really next month in April. And so on April 22nd begins the, uh, if you're a Jew today, you would celebrate Passover on April 22nd. Well, in Esther here, we'll see another uh, feast or festivals instituted called Purim. And it's celebrated in the, four, on the 14th day of the last month on the Hebrew calendar. Which was interesting enough, just last week, on March 23rd, uh, the, uh, the Jewish people celebrated uh, Purim on the 23rd and the 24th. And so they form these bookends here to their calendar year, and also now we'll see that just to this mosaic Judaism forming these bookends to the um, to to their faith. The, the contrast there as well, in, in these two things, obviously we know in Exodus it's where we get God's personal name of Yahweh, and so He's very personal, very involved on every page, speaking directly to Moses. Or in Esther, He's not. You know, He's kind of mysteriously absent. Okay. You know, it's the beginning and the end of, of the law and the temple and the sacrifices. Here's in Exodus where it begins and Esther is really where it kind of falls off the scene. And, and, and really from Esther and on, even as you look through historical Judaism, from then on they become a word-based people and not a temple and a, a sacrifice-based people. And so they, they stick to the scriptures and, and explaining the scriptures and, and they become a people of a book more so than a people of a temple. Um, and, and still are today You know, They're not doing the sacrifices They don't have the temple And so it was rebuilt and there's other things and whatnot. But by and large at this point They, they really Things begin to shift In, uh, in, in uh, Judaism And so I just bring that up here Just for your knowledge there's lots to be said about it There's more, there's volumes that you can read about it I can suggest some things If you're interested with that But tonight what we're going to do Is I'm going to read all ten chapters for us and I'm not just going to read it necessarily straight through. I'm going to have some running commentary. But I want us to see the big picture here. Okay? I want us to see uh, all that God is doing in this book. And as I read it, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice two things in, in kind of each scene. So a story has scenes you know, where, where there's characters, and they're out of place, and then changes, and there's kind of a theme within it. But in each scene, I want you to notice two things. One is that impossible situations that, that God's people are confronted with, they are miraculously turned around. Okay? And so you'll just see it. They'll come to a, an event. It's like, how in the world are they going to get themselves out of this fix? And they do. And secondly, then, let's see God at work in the ordinary events. Even though he's not mentioned, notice how God is at work in just the daily, ordinary, you know, seemingly coincidental events that take place. And so, I'm just going to read it. We won't do this each week. Um, in the weeks that follow, we'll have some themes. But um, turn, if you haven't yet, to Esther, chapter one, verse one, and we're just going to work our way through it now. And uh, I'm going to read it, and and again, just. Offer some commentary at strategic points here. So, You ready for it? Got your seatbelts on? There's some names here that are difficult to pronounce, so bear with me as I do it. But Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, begins this way. It says, "Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. What's interesting with with that phrase, "Now it took place," is is very common for uh, the the Bible in uh, recording historical events. Uh, judges, Joshua begin this way. First and Second Samuel begin this way. And it's just the authors coming. There's no defense of why they happen or anything. It's just. It's just a common Hebrew phrase here and a common way to begin these Old Testament historical books of saying it took place and here's what happened and, uh, you know, without any really defense. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, so Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That's a lot of ground to cover, right? If you think you just know the map, India all the way over there to Ethiopia and Africa and everywhere in between, that's a lot of ground. That's a big, big kingdom. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which is at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. That's a six-month party. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that just really show the the secular description of him as being a, a, a you know a, a brilliant man and a, a man who loved a party and a man who who uh, he, he just had a ton of wealth and here he just says you know for six months let's have a party and I'm gonna bring all my people in here and that doesn't mean that every single person was there all those six months but. Man, all of his riches, all of his splendor, no no holds barred, nothing left out. Just a great, great, great party for six months here. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa. So after the, that 180 day party, you know, six month party for all the, you know, the, the nobles, all those people, now as well, now for all just you, you know, you common folk who live around the capital here, now you can have a week party, you know, a week long, which is still great. I mean, a week vacation on the government's expense. That's uh, all right. Uh, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. They were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So you see the opulence here, right? And this is a grand party. This is all the, the wealth and the riches that he owns on display for all the people here. There's no holds barred, no rules. You can do whatever you want. No compulsion. Come or go. Do as you will. And uh, Queen Vashti is doing the same. You know, probably most likely were, these parties were separate. They weren't mixed or co-ed men here, women there. Now on the seventh day, at the end, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zithar, and Carcass that's a great name, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So much for letting anybody do whatever they want, right? Here's one command. But, verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. And we don't know why she refuses, but she does. There's lots of speculation about why she didn't want to parade herself. She didn't want to go in mixed company. We don't really know why, but all we do know is that she refused, and this made the king very upset. Verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princess, Mimukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. That's a major offense, right? (laughs) Not only did she refuse you, but she's offended everywhere in your vast kingdom. Yeah, right. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with their contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti not to be brought into his presence, but she or to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repeated that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which is... Uh, which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom great as it is then all women will give honor to their husbands great and small I laugh because it said that these guys understood the times but they clearly do not understand women because <laughs> who knows that an edict or a command given to a woman will automatically be followed by every other woman followed in in all the country right that's the uh, This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province, according to its script, and to every people, according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So Queen Vashti is banished. She's banished, and that will then strike fear into every woman who hears this not to uh, refuse her husband anything. Yeah, right. After these things, chapter 2, after these things, when the anger of King Hasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so here now our main characters are introduced into the story. Here there's a a great need. uh, He's looking for a, a new queen, and now we're told of these Jewish people here. What's interesting from this uh, section here is, is some would say, "Wow, this would make Mordecai if he was part of those that were captured." I've already said that took place about 90 years ago. Now he's an uncle; he's going to be up in you know 100 or better, you know, probably around 120 or so at the time of this. Well, we shouldn't understand this as saying that uh, that Mordecai was taken captive, but his his grandfather Kish, okay, Kish was the one; he was the Benjaminite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. Okay, So he came, and so that that uh, gets our timeline right there. And so they, these guys, Mordecai, which Mordecai is a Persian name anyways, and so he had been raised up amongst uh, the Persian people here, along with, and now he's raising his niece, whose Hebrew name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is Esther. And so to bring it up here, as, as a, it's mentioned here, Hadassah, but... Uh, uh, but she'll go from Esther uh, henceforth. So verse eight, so it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Hegai. that Esther was taken to the king's palace in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. And so it's kind of a scandalous thing here. He's bringing all these ladies, trying to find his queen, and, uh, uh, and it's, it's uh, as you would suspect, it's, it's a lot of fornication happening here and a lot of you know, prettying up the women and Esther. She stands out among them and she's very beautiful and she's keeping her ethnicity a secret. She's she's a Jewish w- a woman and she's not saying it. Verse 12, Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, the young lady would go t- into the king in this way anything that she desired was given her to take take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines she would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name so quite scandalous quite scandalous quite you know. that's Way of the world, I guess. Verse 15. Now, in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet for all his princes and his servants. He made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. This guy likes to throw a good party, right? Everything is a reason to have a banquet and, and a celebration. But especially this, he's, he's got a new queen. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. And so what's interesting about even this here is it's really parallels with the book of Daniel, right? This is something common that they would... Uh, you know they would change their diet, they would uh, give them the best care in order to you know, make them the, look the best and be the, the, you know, the brightest and the strongest and, and, and all those things. We know from the book of Daniel that he does not do that right. Daniel does not participate in these things and he comes out ahead of all of his peers you know and that 's kind of what the regiment that they had for the men in that regard. But here they're doing the same thing for the women. All this, you know, years long of beautification. Could you imagine that, women? You know, almost a year in a spa and all these oils and, you know, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great? And so she participates, um, and we, we don't we shouldn't fault her for that or necessarily make her less spiritual than Daniel, but um, but she participates, and uh, obviously we know she becomes then the queen. All that happens there. She goes. Into the king, spends the night with him, and whatever happens there wins his favor, and uh, she becomes queen. Now, here in uh, verse 21, in those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big thin, and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the prank king's presence. And so here Mordecai uh, does a favor for the king, and uh, he is, uh, he's, he's, spares him, and now the king is indebted to uh, this man. Chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Now we read that verse initially, and we you know we, we maybe have trouble pronouncing it, and so we we read over it. But but there's something that's profound here that we can't miss. And so we've just seen here kind of the Jewish people come on the scene in this Persian Empire, but now one of the Jews' main and long lived enemies is has just been promoted. And so he's, he's Haman is called an Agagite, which he which Agag is was the king of the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel 15. Okay? And the Amalekites are one of the Jewish people's main enemies all throughout their history, right? In Exodus they come on the scene. Exodus uh, I believe it's chapter 17, and uh, and and the uh, Jewish people are to fight them, and and God says that they must be wiped from the face of the earth, and and uh, and they're ultimately not, and the, and these lines, you know, they contribute and they become a nemesis of the Jewish people all throughout their history, and now here this nemesis, the antagonist in the story, is brought to the scene, okay, and so here's this man who's being risen to power in king of court verse 2 chapter 3 all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to haman for so the king had commanded concerning him but mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage because do jews bow down to anybody else but the lord right have no other gods so he does not then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to mordecai why are you transgressing the king's command now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So his ethnicity comes out. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they were told, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth month of King Ahasuerus, Pur, which is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all those of your other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hammedatha, Hamadath, uh, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written, Just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet rings. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of this edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Dire times, right? Every Jew, men, women, children, on one day. A one-day massacre. Wow. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her and the queen writhed in great anguish and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai you can tell what my son's name is, right? Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hacca from the king's eunuchs whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, unless has but one law that he be put to death. Uh, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter, so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai imagine not spending time with your wife for 30 days? Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And that there is the theme verse of this whole and so Mordecai uh, compels Esther with her own life saying this applies to you as well once it's found out that you're a Jew you're not getting by with this your own life is at stake so you either put your life at stake in in letting this edict be carried out or you go present yourself to the king and uh, see what happens there Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So fasting and mourning here, and a resolve. And if I perish, well, so be it. Chapter 5, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room. And the king was sitting on the royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the courts, can you see the suspension rising? What's going to happen? She's there. I think we all know though, right? She obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. Right? She was not put to death. She lived. She did not perish. She found favor in the king's sight. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, king, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So he's feeling in a very generous mood, isn't he? Up to half the kingdom. That's a lot of ground. It's a lot of money, a lot of power. And she simply requests that the king and Haman come come, uh, that night, this day, to a banquet. Then the king said, "'Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires.' So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared." As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. So come to another banquet and tomorrow I will tell you. Then Haman went out that day and pleased of heart, but when when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So he leaves out from the king and the queen. So he's feeling pretty mighty. He just had the audience of the two most important and powerful people in the land. So he's feeling all high and mighty. And then he sees this Jewish man not bowing down to him. First, then, Haman controlled himself, however, and went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons in every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and service, servants of the king. I just can't imagine that. Hey, friends, come over to my house. Let me tell you how rich I am. And let me tell you all the great things that I have ever done, you know. I mean, it's, it would be like a football player saying, oh, let me recount to you the glory days of my great football career and all the millions that I made and the contracts that I made and look at my house and my beautiful wife. It's like, you know, this is give me a break. But I don't know that I would necessarily want to be his friend to hear all these things. Verse 12, Haman also said, Well, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. You know, Look at me. I've been personally invited to this banquet and another banquet. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Well, I have all these things, but this one guy gets under my skin. Right? Then Zeresh's wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That's great wife advice, right? He's bothering you, just go kill him, right? Is my wife still here? Don't, that, that Don't ever give me advice like that. If I'm ever complaining about somebody, don't advise me to kill him. Or any of you as my friends. Chapter 6. What's going to happen here? During that night, the king could not sleep. Hmm. So he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, whom would the king desire to honor more than me, right? Surely it only could be me. Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe, which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor." Of course, he wants to have all that happen to himself. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything that you have said. Could you imagine Haman's face? (laughs) What? He had plans to come and ask that this man be hanged. And all because of a sleepless night, taking the books, remembering these things. God coming through in the nick of time, right? Bringing these things to his mind and a crisis has been averted. A sure and certain death has been narrowly escaped. Verse 12, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, then you will sh- not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. That's some real encouraging advice. Of course, that, you know, from the same people that have just advised him to kill him, you're probably not going to find encouragement or sympathy in uh, these things in your defeat, right? While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen, and the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king." Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Can you imagine here in a day of of, uh, a turn of events in this man's life? The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will you even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And so here he's falling, he's probably pleading for her or whatever, and the king walks back in, and he thinks that he is attacking his very wife. Verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Hmm. talk about a turn of events right impossible situations turned around (coughs) chapter 8 on the day king Ahasuerus gave the house of haman the enemy of the jews to queen esther and mordecai came before the king for esther had disclosed what he had was to her the king took off his signet ring which he had taken away from haman and gave it to mordecai and esther sent mordecai over the house of haman Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, "'If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight,' Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he was, had stretched out his hand against the Jews." Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. How are they going to get out of this situation? So the king's scribes were called at the time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to the script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on the enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree went out at the citadel in Susa. And so this is some nine months before it's supposed to happen, right? And so the issue had already been decreed that couldn't be revoked, that all the Jewish people were to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month, early in the year this was made. Now it's been overturned. Uh, Well, that hasn't necessarily been overturned, but an additional decree has been sent out to all the people and all the Jews that, that they can defend themselves, that they can gather to defend and annihilate these people. And so it's like these edicts have gone out, and so they've had to send horses, and obviously it would take weeks and months to get to all the people, but this, these battle orders have gone out to people nine months in advance. There's going to be a big fight in, coming, you know, in December, we might say. Obviously, it's a different month, but at the end of the year, there's going to be this big fight, so everybody get ready for it. <laughs> Can you imagine waiting for that? You know, we wait for election day to come and whatnot, but... Now, we're not just waiting for election day. We're not waiting for you know Christmas at the end of the year. There's going to be this big battle amongst all these people here that I'm probably doing business and living amongst right now. You know, but get ready because you're going to fight each other then. Don't fight in between then. You know, but on that day, it'll be okay and it'll be no holds barred. A big battle. We're almost to the end here. Uh, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived. There was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. And so here, an impossible situation turned around. Here's certain destruction. Now they have hope. And now they know they can defend themselves with even the king's blessing to do so. And because of this, because of this happening, many come to, to become Jewish. They're proselytized. They become uh, Jewish people. Now, nine Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's commanded edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai had become greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men and Par-shadantha, Dalphan, Aspatha, Por- Poratha, Adelia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Aresai, Aradai, and Valzatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king, The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Esther, she's she's kind of vicious and violent here, isn't she? Her second request is that the (laughs) battle continue, and not only that these guys that have been killed, now they're put on display and hanged. You know, which is really just a show of of, hum, of humiliation that they would be hung out in front of them. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of the enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the thirteenth and the fourteenth of the same month, and they rested on the fifteenth day, and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the fourteenth day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook... What they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast purr, that is the law, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fall from them, from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the compliments of his authority and strength, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second and only to King Ahasuerus the great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, who one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So ends the book of Esther. And so the... the uh, feast and the celebration of Purim still takes place. Like I just said, it was last week. And it's a raucous event, I'm told. It, I guess it's a, it's a time of great celebration, great feasting. They send gifts of food to one another, and they party. And really what's actually characteristic of it is a lot of drunkenness. And so some of the rabbis actually have written that it's commanded that the Jewish people get drunk um, at this time. And they, they celebrate and the reason we, I even chose to read this tonight, not just an exercise in endurance for all of us and reading ten <laughs> chapters, but because this is what the Jewish people do every year at the, at the time of Purim. They read this book, but any time that Haman's name is mentioned, they shout and they, they yell really loud so that nobody can hear his name pronounced. And so, if we were if we were actually reading this as Jewish people, while I was reading, any time that Haman's name came, you would shake things around, and, ah! you know. so we, you wouldn't hear his name blotted out. Uh, you would never, you would his name would be blotted out, and you would never hear him. And so, the greatness of Mordecai is exalted, and the curses of Haman are ah! uh, yeah. <laughs> good word. Because they don't want to they don't wanna remember him. His name was blotted out from their memory But what God did here And so what's really fascinating is this book Has become a, a, a very important book To even today's Jewish people And this was great comfort for the Jewish people At the time of the Holocaust They memorized this book Even to the point where the, the Nazis Outlawed this book the, Them having it in written form Or even quoting it And so in the prison camps uh, they, would, they would be just quoting this by memory, this whole entire book, this story, to their captors and to the, those that were beating them and in the prison and, uh, in order to fuel their, their hope that God would come through, just as he had had at a different time when another enemy had sought to <laughs> annihilate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. And so that's, that's why we read it. That's why we could see God come through. Didn't time and time again, an impossible situation, seeming like something, how are they going to get out of this situation? And God turning it around, right? God, God uh, changing uh, the course of events. And so just as we close here, just have a few more minutes, just some time of, of application here for us. What a, what a great book. We'll look at more of the details in a coming weeks. So we'll meet it here again next week. But I just want to say, in light of reading this book and all that we've seen tonight, praise God for his special revelation. Praise God for his special revelation. And the reason that I say that is if we only had the book of Esther in our Bible, it would really only be a a, a nice story. But God has given us the complete canon, right? Genesis to revelation, where Jesus is revealed to us. We have general revelation also, the uh, creation the things around us that tell us that there is a God we can read the book of Esther and know that there is a God but what gives Esther its richness and its, uh, and, and its depth and its application here is because we have the entirety of scripture and we know who God is because he's been specially revealed to us in other points of scripture and so that doesn't diminish uh, Esther's role that doesn't diminish its authority or its inspiration Or it's a it's it's uh, uh, it's meaning to us, but we need to praise God for all of of Scripture. We need to praise Him that He has given us the entire book here, and that we know Jesus, and ultimately that He's given us Jesus, who is the special revelation. Right? We have Him recorded and written here in the book. We know He's the great deliverer. Esther and and even Mordecai, in some ways, they are shadows of what Christ would. Uh, what he would fulfill in the ultimate savior of the Jewish people and the Gentile people here but we praise God that we know about Christ right? praise God that we know the gospel and that we can be saved through that and that alone (coughs) but secondly here in the book of Esther it teaches us here to praise God for his activity in the ordinary events of our life right Moments of sleeplessness, yeah? and God, God does a, a miraculous work through just that ordinary event. You know, it, we, we can't even really call it miraculous because it's just God's providential work. You know, this guy coming, of Mordecai being at the right place at the right time to overhear these two guys scheming against the king. You know, of of uh, of, uh, of Queen Vashti refusing. A, a, a command of her husband, and so even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of just ordinary things of our life, God is still at work in those things. And sometimes we we're, we're always searching for the radical, are not we? We always want just these highs, or we want God to come through supernaturally, or we need Him to you know to to uh, to do this great and powerful and and uh, you know, miraculous work amongst us. And yet God is working just in the ordinary details of life. Just moving events and the things that we uh, uh, you know, are just normal to us. And so we can't discount what he's doing in us and just the daily things. And how he's growing and how he's changing us and how he's moving different things to work out for our favor and for his glory. And so we'll look at more at that uh, specifically in this doctrine of providence later. But we also need to say, praise God for uh, the moments when we can't see Him at work. You know, when we can't, when we don't know exactly what He's doing. You know, in those moments where we say, "Where are you, God? What are you doing? I, what's happening here?" You know, in strained relationships, and times of grief, or whatnot, and times of uh, of great pain, or times of uh, Financial distress. God, I'm trying to follow you. Here I have these promises. I know who you are, but where are you? We're tempted to think that God has turned his attention away. Right? We're tempted to think that God has become preoccupied in something else. We can't necessarily see him at work. We don't know what he's up to. But I can assure you tonight and I think that Esther here as we've seen time and time again throughout this this great narrative is that even in those moments where we can't see him at work is that he is indeed very at work. right? Carrying out his will preserving his people not without uh, some scares not without some suffering not without uh, maybe some pain but God is still at work and so we can praise him Even when we can't see what he's up to. (laughs) Even when we can't see how this is going to work out for our good. But we can still praise God that he is uh, uh, intimately, personally at work in your life, in my life, in these situations. Always doing his will. Always uh, about his glory. Always about working out things that are conforming us to the image of Christ. And so don't discount those. Don't, don't run away from them. Don't, uh, don't shy away from what God is teaching you in the moment and in the midst of those seasons where you can't necessarily see what he's doing or why he's doing it. That's what Esther teaches us. That's what we see here, of God preserving and working amongst his people even when it seems the whole world is bent on his people's destruction. So we can take great hope in that, can't we? We can take great great comfort in knowing that God is at work amongst us. So let me pray to close us, and then we'll take some questions have some time of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you are involved in all the details of our life. And so thank you for this great reading of this book that has brought comfort to your people for centuries in the midst of opposition and in the midst of hatred and other things God so might you use this book in our own life for someone who's here tonight might this even be comforting to them in, in, uh, uh, in, in maybe a season of opposition that they find themselves in or a season of, of uh, uh, dryness wondering where you are or why you, or what, what you're doing in their life so may you through your word tonight Remind them that you're right there and doing exactly uh, according to your plan. I pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.